This is Talking Cities, where we meet the people making cities brilliant. One of the biggest challenges facing our cities as they become more densely populated is the ability to coordinate all of the significant transport, urban development and other infrastructure projects that are underway at the same time. Now in Sydney, right now there's over $135 billion worth of projects currently underway. At any scale, that is a mega amount of investment in a city. So how do we harmonise these huge projects and optimise the impact that they have on a city? With a hugely complex challenge in mind, today on Talking Cities, I'm joined by David Pitchford. David acts as an independent strategic advisor and an expert with over 35 years experience in the successful delivery of major urban transformation projects, advising governments and industry in Australia and internationally. Until very recently, David was Chief Executive of Urban Growth New South Wales and Chief Executive of Urban Growth New South Wales Development Corporation. Today, David Pitchford joins me and we're talking about major urban transformation projects. Welcome, David. Great to have you here at, uh, at ACOM in Sydney. Thanks for coming along. Thank you, James. Good to see you again. Yeah, you too. You too. Now, um, today we're going to have a, this is our uh, Talking Cities podcast and, uh, you're quite an influential figure in cities <laughs> in Australia and around the world. And, um, every single one of our guests guess the first question I ask them is their favorite city around the world and, uh, and what it is they love about that. So I'll fire that one at you first before we get into some of the juiciest stuff. Okay. Well, I divide it into two immediately. Sydney and London. Right. Not Melbourne. <laughs> Are you no, from Melbourne? No, well, I'm from Hobart originally. Spent mm-hmm. most of my career in Melbourne. Always wanted to live in Sydney. Yeah. And then when I moved to London, fell in love with it. Yeah, okay. So tell me why you like Sydney more than Melbourne then. Well- Because there is a tension between the two cities. There is a tension. And when I was the CEO of the city of Melbourne, I was uh, a prime part of that tension. Mm. But- what I was involved in and in favour of was that we should promote and merchandise and advertise Sydney and Melbourne as two uh, two offerings in a great global offering. Yeah. Um, and I think the nonsensical competition that exists, the parochialism, is a real break yeah. on our international development. Bringing people to Australia through the port of Sydney, the yeah. airport and other ports, um, and sending them off to regret leaving uh, out of Melbourne, mm. I think it's a fun, fantastic idea rather than trying to keep them all penned up. <clears throat> yeah. One of the things I love about Sydney, and there are many, uh, the opportunities to actually transform it, are, as you know, better than anybody, are massively attractive to me. And yeah. Things like the, the base precinct, which I think is by far and away the highest potential urban transformation site in the world, mm. uh, is one of the reasons why I, I live and breathe here. Mm. But the other thing is, as a 45-year surf lifesaver, mm. there are very few cities in the world where you can go to uh, go to the beach and have a body surf before you go to work. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, and I just do, I do that three days a week. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, particularly with water as, uh, as clean uh, and sand as clean as we have here in Sydney, it's, uh, it is unique. It is unique and it's a real bonus. Um, Everybody who comes here um, comes for uh, for many reasons. What's common to all of them is the clean air, the great climate, and the clean water. And I guess that's what's in. If you look at Sydney's base, and that's what's driven the inequity of concentration around the coast, is that it is such a wonderful attractor, and the harbour is a wonderful attractor. And as we think about Western Sydney and development of the central city and uh, and the third city out around the airport, we need to think about providing that same level of amenity uh, and attraction out in Western Sydney that that we get right now as we experience the, the coastal city. I agree with that. Uh, 
the Barry Humphreys unhelpfully uh, Melbourne um, uh, born and bred once ad- uh, observed that if you don't live on the coast in Sydney, you might as well live in Melbourne. Mm. But the reality of, of life now is that the opportunities that uh, that uh, Western Sydney present uh, in terms of the airport and the aerotropolis and the proposition that that uh, relates to that is fundamentally important because not everybody can and, and not everybody wants to live right slap bang in the middle of Bondi. Mm. The reality of it is people can't afford it. Yeah. But what we need to do is to provide them with options they can afford and uh, lifestyles that match what they can afford. Yeah. And I think that's what it is. We need to densify what we uh, we, we offer mm. um, and you know, the trade-off from them, uh, for them rather, is to provide in, in return for that density mm. a bigger lifestyle. Yeah. So you sacri- that they sa- sacrifice somewhat yeah. um, the large dwellings that we used to have when we were kids, mm. um, but in return they get a, a, a much a, bigger lifestyle. Yeah, it's a nice way of putting it, isn't it? Yeah, and, and that's bigger what- Bigger lifestyle. Bigger lifestyle, yeah. Mm. And, and that's what you can provide in Western Sydney. Mm. Um, you know, there are things that can be introduced. There are things that are already there mm. and, and other sorts of things like you know, different sporting uh, activities. Uh, you know, the Blue Mountains are not far away. Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole range of things that can be introduced. Yeah, I mean, there's a real push towards uh, the visitor economy as well and culture and leisure uh, and theme parks, you know, and those sort of attractions as well to add to that big lifestyle that uh, you typically have up on the Gold Coast, but uh, they could also be part of that big lifestyle in, in Western Sydney. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think what we need to do is to be really quite innovative in the way we think about it and not try and replicate what's on the coast, mm. but rather uh, introduce things that may be not on the coast. Mm. Uh, in, and right around the world, you'll see cities that – and Melbourne is one of these cities. It's nowhere near as, as uh, naturally beautiful as Sid- uh, Sydney, but it's mm. been able to convert itself into what we call um, in Australia – Australia's European city, yeah, and it has an offering that uh, Sydney doesn't have, and that's another reason why we should be promoting uh, both sites around the world rather yeah. than trying to promote one. And you'll see across those uh, landlocked countries in, in Europe, they have great um, tourist attractions, yeah, mm. whether it's the architecture, whether it's what they do, whether it's the food, whether it's the sporting attractions. But so people sit down and come up with really great ideas about how you could introduce genuinely new offerings. Mm. I think they'd be really engaging too for, for Sydney siders and citizens in the city to actually begin to think about creatively about what, what it is in Western Sydney and contribute to that conversation. Well, I think that's entirely right. I mean, we, they should have a wave machine out there of huge that's, proportions. Well, you know, have you seen Kelly Slater's new wave yeah, machine? I have. Kelly Slater's wave, you know, this, this wave, surfing technology in terms of uh, artificial technology is going through the roof. It is absolutely going through the roof and you can put it anywhere, literally. Yeah, anywhere. Yeah. And, and so I, uh, I think that this could be a, you know, a really great opportunity for us. Yeah. Should we get Kelly on board, do you think? Well, I think so, because he loves Australia. He loves it. He's got a house in Avalon near where yeah, I live. it's his favourite beach. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and of course, he's not not a bad surfer, so we could probably mm. get him to teach a few things uh, to a lot of people, but he's business smart and he loves Australia. It would be a really good idea to get someone like that yeah. to talk to us about what we could do in Western Sydney. I think you're onto something. He's, 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 a, he's a smart guy, you know, and he's part of the World Surfing League and uh, advises them as well. Uh, do you keep up with the World Surfing League? I watched it avidly. My family hate it. Yeah. In fact, so much so I had to get another um, uh, Foxtel box so I could record and watch the World Surf League yeah. in another room from yeah. there. 
I tend to watch it on my uh, mobile device. It's they've been so smart in giving away their free, uh, oh. well, giving away their 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 sport that yeah. um, it's had huge traction. And that's exactly it, James. They've given it away, but what they're reaping is a huge reward in relation to exposure. Yeah, people who've never heard of it watch it absolutely every time it's on now. Yeah, and you know you see Foxtel itself every day of every surf league. Yeah, is is live and free. Yeah, and so I think it's a it's a really great idea. But there are other people within that. Patch as well as Kelly that are, yeah. that are really smart about how cities interact because you know, surfers by definition are great lovers of the environment. Yeah, and he is one of those. Yeah, um, and there are others, even even current um, participants in the league, yeah. that are really mad keen on the environment. And yeah. so, looking at environmentally uh, productive things to do in a landlocked area is you know, asking a surfer what to do about that. It's not yeah. a bad idea. Yeah. I think um, I think you just hit on something there. I mean, there's a couple of things. Firstly, that's actually how to use technology to create something new and create yeah. new value. Yeah. Um, and that's that's what we're challenged with here in trying to grow a city quickly. Um, we need to find new ways of doing things. And, and that's what the World Surfing League was faced with doing. They're faced with competition from the EPL and all those massive sporting establishments out there. Yeah. They found a gap and they found a different way of approaching it uh, and they've been successful. And that's the way we need to think about cities as well. I think that's right. And one of the things about cities that, that are exceedingly um, attractive is that the the more diverse they are, the more attractive they are. Yeah, and and Western Sydney's diversity needs to be addressed. I mean, yep. it, it's lagging behind, and that's and it's not it's it's not the the region's fault. It's mm. the way that it's it uh, we've all been governed. Mm. Uh, it's lagging behind in terms of opportunity and innovation and um, uh, technology and and. Uh, and, and smart jobs. Mm-hmm. So we need to think about that and what converts those. There are other great city builders, universities, and, you know, that's starting to come to play as well. Uh, and there are other uh, fantastic things, you know, the, the airport, the, the Aerotropolis approach to the airport. Do you support that? Oh, absolutely, I do. And I think that surrounding the airport or, you know, allowing to develop from the airport those sorts of aerospace jobs, high-tech jobs, mm-hmm. and, and just the other elements that grow with an airport – Mm. Is fundamentally important, but what it's got to be much more than a, um, a runway with shops, mm. which is the usual model for mm. an airport, and you see those right right throughout the western jurisdiction. Mm. Uh, so what we need to do is to look at how we would like that airport to work before we build it. Yeah, and that includes how can people get to it and from it. Um, to work at it, but also so you get visitors. Yeah, uh, lots, lots more coming because if you come to that airport and you you're wanting to come to uh, the Sydney CBD, so there's now three mm. under the, the Greater Sydney Commission plan. That there's the Eastern um, uh, CBD, there's Parramatta, and now there'll be um, the Aerotropolis. That will need to be <laughs> interoperable. Mm. You can't expect people to stay just in those three centres. So you need to be able to get through, and that's where I see in in the paper uh, only yesterday that the state government now has started to recognise that it, the future is mass transit rail and very fast mass transit rail. Yep. And so with that dawning comes a lot of hope for us city builders. Mm. And what about, you know, this is the federal government that are building this as an anchor. 
uh, and funding this as an anchor. And that, do you think that's the right way to approach as a catalyst to drive growth in Western Sydney? Well, I think it's, it's better than, um, the other alternative of allowing, uh, the Sydney Airport Corporation to develop it. The Sydney Airport Corporation, um, runs a great product at Sydney Airport. Incredible product. But it's, it's, uh, you know, and it's great for all, all of our economic undertakings, but they are not a, um, a builder or a developer, mm. they are an airport operator. Mm. And so I think that the federal government is right to guarantee this platform, mm. but it needs to come up with a really, really powerful development consortium that looks at all of the element elements that we just spoke about before. You know, start to think now about attracting aerospace industries and everything that goes with it, yeah. not not just build the airport and then hope it's going to, uh, people are going to come, but also to go around the world and see what's going on. If you, I know you've been to China recently as I have. Uh, and if you look at what's going on there, they're building their airports for, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ahead. Yeah. And you're know, looking into technology with such fantastic applications, like the runway is actually a solar um, generator. Yeah. Uh, and you're, uh, surrounding it is a whole range of other solar applications. And they're looking to, um, uh, to save water through different applications. Uh, mm. that the airport can bring because it has great industries and great minds in those industries that mm. are starting to build up. So we need to start thinking about this way, way further mm. than just having a really smart-looking airport mm. that's in the right place for a change. Yeah. What we need to do is to build this into a city as we're building the flight path. Mm. But it feels, like, it feels like those conversations are happening and that planning is happening. It, it does. Would, <clears throat> do you agree with that or not? Or do you think, it's, do you think we're being visionary enough? Uh, no, I don't. Okay. I think... I think good on the government for doing something that's been talked about for 30 years. Yeah. But as you know, my part in the base precinct, I was just somewhere between amazed and appalled that that, you know, 75 hectares of land and 74 hectares of Sydney Harbour, two kilometres from the CBD, has been allowed to fester like that. Mm. And I think so's this opportunity been allowed to fester. Mm. So uh, I'm very appreciative of the fact that they are going to do it, but mm. I want you know, if, if I was in charge, mm. uh, I would have a team of people starting on what else is going to be at the airport, not just the runways and the buildings. Mm. And I think that that's that, that team should be off around the world seeing what's going on and starting to to put designs in place. Okay, so that, that's interesting. Now, now let's then – so you, you were the CEO of Melbourne City. Yeah. Um, then I want to you, – you, your next favourite city was London. Tell us a bit about London. Your experience there, what we can learn from London, but firstly, tell us about why you love the city. Well, I love it, uh, James, because it's the big scale. Mm. It's, it, it is the grand stage. Mm. Um, and we think of Sydney and Melbourne as being the grand stage, but when you're actually in the financial capital of the world, uh, in one of the oldest capitals um, on earth uh, with a, a, a culture and an architectural platform that's beyond measure, um, it, you you become sort of uh, infected by it, yeah. and, and that was me as well. I think the overall learning from that, uh, I'll come back to in terms of some specifics, but the overall learning from the way that the UK um, sort of portfolio of major projects is administered is that they were willing to accept from the outset that theirs was not the best model, and they were therefore willing to look to how they could do it better. And so um, I got headhunted to go to the UK to do a piece of consultancy to look at how they could manage their portfolio of major projects. And why'd they pick you? Well, because I'd been the CEO of a city, and they tried to get me to go there to be the CEO of the city of Westminster. Mm. But the Dubai government won out on that battle because they got me to go to Dubai to do the uh, the development of the 
Palm Jumeirah. Unfortunately, before we got too far into that, the whole of the country went bankrupt and there was a completely different set of conditions. So having seen someone who had been involved in that recently, because uh, when I went to London for the interviews for Westminster, uh, I uh, met a lot of people and, and I was on the market and so they gave me the opportunity to do it. And also they wanted someone from outside of the space that could be frank and fearless and candid about what uh, uh, what was going on and what should really happen. So I went and did that for six months and it, I was amazed, mesmerised by the fact that they not only were they running their portfolio badly, but they didn't have a portfolio. There was no central understanding, and you won't believe this because I found it hard to believe it and I was doing it. They had no central understanding of how many major projects there were, how much, therefore, how much they cost and what stage they were at in terms of delivery and what obligations that these projects had created in terms of financial, legal and, and social outcomes. When was that, back in 2010 or 12? Uh, 2000 or? and uh, mid to nine. Right. Yeah. So and just, just after the global financial yeah, crisis. Yeah, and that's what it was all about. Uh, they were very disadvantaged, unlike Australia, which was able to survive on its uh, on its mineral and export sales, but the UK didn't have that. And they were well in uh, well north of $350 billion in the red. And so they, they had to cast around and, you know, they had this huge uh, budget approach to stringency. And so they were looking to see how they could improve everything. So <clears throat> I spent six months doing that trying to find out where the projects were. And yeah, there's a massive scale here. I mentioned it is the big scale. I'll give you an indication. We put together a portfolio over that uh, six months that had 212 um, projects in it. Mm. And the, the, the criterion the uh, criteria out that we used were high risk, high value, high reputational um, damage to the government. And when you applied all of those, there were around about two and a half thousand. And of those, 212 were absolutely critical. Major projects. Major projects. And those 212 had a whole of life value of 684 billion pounds. Right. Which is 1.3 trillion Australian dollars. Yeah. And of that- Is this in the city of London or- This is in the whole of the UK. Right. Because it's central government there. Right. It's the Greater London Authorities, if you like, the, the, uh, the local government authority application, but the central government is in the city as well. Um, and so w- with that, the, the killer blow about this though is of that 212 projects, only 23% had a projection that they were going to deliver anywhere near on time and on budget. Right. So you got almost, you got 76 or 77% of projects within Highly a, inefficient. Highly inefficient. Mm. And so I made all these recommendations that they should set up a central control and oversight authority with powers to not only oversee, but to in, intervene. So then I sorted off back to Australia, not thinking that they'd take it up. But I got a call from uh, the new Prime Minister Cameron or his office and said, would we want you to come back and set this authority up and to run it? So I did that. Right. And so we progressively- um, Did they need to pass any acts of parliament to to set this body up and give you the power you need to intervene? And so what sort of powers are we talking about? Resumption of land and- All of that. Yes, there was, excuse me. The travel bug. The starting point was, and you've picked up it right on the, the money question here, because um, without some form of really powerful um, and uh, overarching authority, you would not be able to do it. Mm. But the planets were aligned. The, the the country was never before, even in wartime, in a worse situation in terms of the financial, economic, and 
um, and uh, government uh, planets. So they were aligned and everybody was keen to do it differently and better. And so um, we set out to uh, to uh, look at it. The proposition I put to uh, the Prime Minister was that um, this would only work if there was a full Prime, uh, Prime Minister's mandate provided to the uh, Major Projects Authority. Mm. And the important part about this was that it was uh, to be a mandate not just to mandate the uh, responsibilities, activities and accountabilities of the major projects authority. Yeah. But it was to do exactly the same for the secretaries of state and the undersecretaries and the departments. And so this um, brought into play, you must be in this and you will do it this way. Um, and he set up a, what they call a reporting quad, which was him, the minister, the chancellor of the exchequer, the first secretary to the treasury. And then the minister of the cabinet office, and that was my reporting quad. Um, and through those, you know, that's the power of the government right there. Uh, and they, that, that's the difference. They, as I said before, they saw that they needed to do it differently. And when they saw how to do it differently, they snapped up the chance. They set it up. And then there was the enabling legislation, which has created the, uh, the forward way. It, it, that, that legislation has now combined what used to be infrastructure uh, UK with the major projects authority. And, you know, that's a smart move in its, in its own right because it brings together the infrastructure development and the oversight of the projects into the one body. And so, long answer, but that's the difference. Um, here in Australia, we haven't, in, and in New South Wales, we haven't got to the point where the government accepts that it can do it better. Uh, and, you know, the, the Turnbull government strike on the uh, into moving into the development of the airport is perhaps a really good turning point. Yeah. Hopefully it'll be a serious pivot. But in New South Wales, there's not yet the acceptance within either the bureaucracy or um, the political arm that we can do it better. Out in Western Sydney, could we create a delivery authority or development area um, with special powers like they did for, you know, Barangaroo and we can learn from Barangaroo and then there was City West here in Piermont years ago that seemed to work quite well? Yeah, I think that the answer is certainly you can, but what I'd favour is the creation of a collaborative body that has the framework of, of a development authority similar to Barangaroo but incorporates the, uh, the local government and other elements of government into mm. it. Mm. Um, so Barangaroo has been successful uh, in terms of you know, the, the building of, of this, mm. but in terms of, of building of creating a great city, mm. it's not there yet. No, um, and so the reality is that uh, the, the, the development authority model, in its own right, mm. doesn't guarantee a great city outcome. I, I guess you would you could argue that I mean it's taken us fifteen years though to get those three buildings in that precinct there, which is a long time. Well, it is a long time, and that's... Uh, we don't have that much time if the Sydney's going to be 8 million people by 2056. We don't have that much time, and and the, the reason it took that to much time, that successive governments and successive bureaucracies allowed it to take that time, yeah. and in some cases forced it to take that time. Yeah. Where what we've got the opportunity here with the, uh, the onrush of the airport mm. is that that sets a critical path. Yeah. And we've got to pull all this other stuff into play before the airport's development. If we get everybody to accept that, then there's some momentum. And once you've got momentum, you bring the innovation into it, like we were talking about before, doing mm. different things or in different ways in different places, mm. then the whole thing starts to, to come together. But we tend to do things sequentially, like we'll build the airport and then we'll see what happens. Mm. And as I said, I'll get on my hobby horse about this, the, the, we really, really need to start the strategic planning for that uh, for that uh, whole region right now. Hmm. 
Yeah. Now in London, what were the some of the major? So you, you you're part of this major projects um, unit, uh, and what were some of the major projects you delivered when you were over there? One of the most successful ones is uh, um, Crossrail. For those that don't know, Crossrail is a mega rail project that's going on in London right now. It's 118 kilometres of railway line, 10 new stations, all designed to increase London's rail capacity by 10%. Which is uh, um, a terrific innovation. But when we started on examining Crossrail had been in the making, in the planning rather, for nearly 11 years before they started on it. Mm. Uh, and in the two years after it commenced um, activity, uh, it was read um, and 13 interventions later converted it from a massive budget in excess of $27 billion down to what it's going to be today or this year delivered for you know, less than 16 And how, how is that done? Is that value capture? It's value capture. It's redesign. It's really smart, innovative building. And it's also accepting that you don't have to have the Rolls-Royce. Mm. Um, and you know, a perfectly workable, efficient and effective system is what it is. Mm. And now it's been so uh, – and also one of the great innovations about it, the government required the business community to make a contribution before it would go ahead. Mm. And you know, the, the square mile that is the City of London mm. actually put in £400 million. Pounds. Right. Can you imagine? So that was a special levy. Yeah. If you like. Yeah. Residences as well? Like no, resi- no. Just business. Just business. They were going to receive a benefit and it was proved what sort of benefit they were going to receive once this cross rails up and running. Absolutely right. And, you know, that the application of such a model here has never been tried and can you imagine the outcry of it? Well, I don't know. I mean, as you said, I mean, this is, we're a global economy now and, yep. um, you know, we should be using data and lessons from around the world to help us better understand how to be more efficient and yep. deliver projects well. We've yeah. got West Metro, you know, connecting, you know, Parramatta and the CBD and then potentially out to the airport. Perhaps that'll be a case in point. Well, it is a case in point. And, and I have great extended thinking in, or not great, but I have very extensive thinking in relation to this. You've always, you've known that I've always been an absolute avid, um, uh, promoter of uh, Sydney Metro West, mm. which services from the CBD through the base precinct out through um, the Olympic Corridor, uh, then on to Parramatta, and then back, and then past that, probably come out of the ground there and go to Penrith. Mm. But now it should go from Penrith all the way around to the, the new airport as well. Yep. But I also have a view that that um, that rail link ought to go straight through the city down the Malabar Peninsula to La Perouse mm. because the potential for um, densification of, of La Perouse is massive. Oh, it is. And, I mean, it's a gorgeous area too. It's a great area and you get high-quality, um, high-density um, outcomes and you know, the economic driver of this, and that ought to be this, and we ought to be building economic infrastructure, yeah. not just um, what I would call transport-oriented infrastructure. Roads may be important to some, but what I see is f- fundamental to the economic development of Sydney and, and New South Wales is this massive transit. Yeah, I, I, but I agree with you about, you know, look at Malabar. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously it's not natural area at the moment, so it's, it's residential area at the moment, but you've yep. got the ocean on one side and you've got the bay on the other. So it, naturally it's beautiful. Um, it's got the, the amenity we talked about and, uh, and it's close to the city. Yeah, indeed. And it's close to jobs. You and, know? and there's an absolute 
um, winner of a pilot program there. Mm. You see what Urban Growth did with St Henry's uh, mm. St Henry's Hospital and mm. Little Bay. Little Bay, um, yeah. and that's the highest density uh, uh, by a mile in the on the whole peninsula. Yeah, but it's a great development, and it look, it's um, it's a great lifestyle for those people who live there. And we're talking about the replication of that sort of lifestyle, not the high rise, you know, very tall towers and things like that, which are much better oriented around um, CBDs. Yeah. So you had your influence in London and then you were attracted to come back to Sydney, the city that your second city that you love. Yes. Um, so you've settled here in Sydney now and you took on a role with the New South Wales state government at, uh, as the CEO of Urban Growth, New South Wales, and yep. you were challenged at the time to transform Landcom from a greenfield development company, a state-owned development company into urban growth as a an infill yeah. um, urban regeneration company essentially to enable the complex major projects you've just talked about that you were part of in London. Yes. Can you just tell me about some of the challenges in terms of leadership as, as a leader of that company, taking a company, Lancom, from Lancom through to urban growth? Well, significant. I mean, Lancom is a successful but very much under the radar operator that very well managed and uh, came up with a, a fantastic product, but it was a, an homogenized product. Um, and it, in my view, and the view of many of, of those people who brought me here, um, that the, 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 the sort of, um, the future of that product, I, I questioned it. Mm. We just cannot, we cannot keep rolling out Greenfields developments, uh, as the solution because the, the transport solution is not there. No. We can't afford to provide the transport. So therefore, why in the hell are we, mm. we building slowly towards being crossing the border into Victoria and becoming a suburb of Melbourne the way things. Are. So we looked at doing it differently, bringing, uh, infill as you call it, but I call it transforming some of the sites that are available in Sydney and they're fantastic. As I said before, world class sites. The central to Everly rail corridor is 95 hectares mm. of very developable land within walking distance of the CBD. Mm. So why wouldn't we be all over that? Mm. And that's the place for well designed, diverse, high rise, high density. So was urban growth trying to be like a, a well, like a quasi major projects, um, Authority, authority, yes. Authority yeah. that you were part of in London? Yeah, indeed. That was the aim? And that was the aim, and that's why they brought me here. Um, the fundamental question is, and this is one of the reasons why I decided to move on at the end of my contract expiring, is that what was fundamentally different from in London, um, my organisation did not have the equivalent of the Prime Minister's mandate, and it did not have the enabling legislation. And so what that uh, uh, perpetrated was a circumstance where there's not a whole of government approach to it. And so you had uh, warring factions in transport and in planning, um, Treasury and others um, who, and so there, were, there was not one ambition, uh, one arch, overarching ambition for, say, the base precinct and, and uh, Central to Everly, uh, and that still remains the case. Mm. And so uh, the opportunity exists for a massive injection of economic growth through developing those um, sites because if you look around the world where they've done that, Mm. Uh, their cities have been absolutely transformed into different places. And um, so what's the future of the bays now? Where's it at? Well, it's ready to go. Mm. But what's um, now there appears to be tentative interest in accepting the need for the mass transit rail solution to make the bays um, 
uh, feasible. Hmm. I mean, if you're going to bring 40,000 people into that 75 hectare site, the only way they can get there now is to walk over the Anzac Bridge. The Anzac Bridge. Yeah. Um, and that just simply won't do. Yeah. And is, is the, is the concept still for the innovation employment cluster and the innovation ecosystem? Uh, at the White Bay site, and I'm talking about the fish markets. Yeah, well, I hope not, because one of the fundamental reasons that the supposed arrangement with Google was unable to be realised is that throughout the world and 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 throughout the in the cities where Google has been a, a key player, innovation districts only work if they're genuine mixed use. Yep. And what, and so that you, people work, live and play in the area, the people visit and you have to have other elements uh, mm. rather than the, just the technology, yeah. um, the technology providers such as, um, hospitals, international medical research centers, universities. And so you start to get a great diversity and the type of mixed use you get is really genuine mixed use. Mm. And that's what makes, um, centers work. We looked at, uh, at urban growth through 102 supposed innovation centers right around the, right around the world and did four months of work looking at uh, and analyzing why they work and why they don't. Yeah. And in the circumstances, those that don't, uh, don't work. Um, invariably don't have the diversity, the diversity and the mixed use application. And 58% of so-called innovation districts, um, fail. Mm. So it's, it's hard work to get them to work. So yep. you think you're talking about 40% are successful. The ones of those 40% that are successful, it is because they've got lots of planks in their platform. Yeah. Genuine mixed use, like I've described before, where in the, the 60% or so that fail, Almost equally, invariably, the ones that fail are government-imposed as opposed to organically led. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so, were we were we being too prescriptive then in our approach to White Bay, the White Bay side? Is that what went wrong? Was it too prescriptive? There wasn't enough to allow for market forces. Well, I think that's yeah. I need to be a bit careful about this because I, I do have some restrictions on my um, my thinking, but I can say. Uh, unequivocally that without residential, there was no way it could be um, uh, reach a feasibility the market would do. Mm. And I think that uh, the proposition exists there. It's still right in play. Mm. Um, but the government needs to decide what its whole of government approach is to the Bay's precinct and the power station and the fish market um, uh, principally. Um, but uh, without, uh, sorry, and without that, I think that it will struggle in the same way it has for the last 40 years. Mm. Um, I'm hopeful that the, the thinking will start to emerge, mm. that we need to, to come together to solve this in the way that the UK government did with their out-of-control projects. Now, I'm interested in market-led proposals and unsolicited bids and how, you know, I've got this theory that over time, as Sydney grows, you know, it took us 227 years to get to 4.7 million. Um, and it's probably going to take us another 40 years to double in population. All right. So we had 227 years to deliver all this great infrastructure here. We've only got 47 years now or 40 years yeah. to deliver that same amount again. Yeah. So we don't have the, we don't have the luxury of time. And, um, you know, it's things take a long time in our bureaucracy in, in Australia. So I've got this theory that the, the private sector is going to have to take a greater role in actually leading projects and delivering projects uh, and, you know, in co concert with the government. Um, so tell me about what your thoughts are about how the private sector can do that and build the trust with constituents and the city to see that it's not a dodgy deal. Well, therein lies a magic question. It's magic. <laughs> yeah. If you can, Have you got an answer? Well, I, I've got a, uh, an offering. Okay. I, I think 
I think you're right. The market needs to step up and lead. Mm. And you know, to a certain extent, the Bayes Precinct and Central to Everly and, and sites like that are examples of market failure as well as government failure. Mm. No one's been prepared to lead. Mm. Uh, and you know, a government private proposition there is you know, a, fan, uh, a fantastic idea. But so I, I think in order to um, show, encourage and allow the marketplace to lead, government should free up and offer up mm. uh, uh, its land. Mm. The thing that the government's got mm. that, it, that everybody wants is mm. the land. Yeah. But there needs to be a trust-based, and this is a problem in New South Wales because of the perceptions of things gone past, mm. um, a trust-based uh, uh, situation uh, whereby the, we continue the war on, um, on uh, uh, mediocrity. Mm. We've got to get great uh, outcomes out of those the, that land and the mm. government's role in it would be to oversee that war on mediocrity because what we need to do is to build great places but we need to have great spaces as well. Mm. Um, and you know, so the proposition is there. For example, the Bays again, the 20-year the strategic plan introduces a whole range of new public and open space use possibilities and offsets a lot of concerns about the, mm. about the developer-led uh, assault and, you know, I understand that. You know, my first town hall meeting when I came to do this job four years ago, a bit over four years ago, was in, was in Newcastle. Mm. And I had a lot of hecklers and one of them heckled from the back saying, why don't you change your name to uh, Malignant Growth? Mm. Right. Uh, and so that'll give you an understanding of just how people see you know, the government developer mm. um, and they see the private developers as even worse. Mm. So what's got to turn that around mm. is a genuine commitment to um, overcoming mediocrity of outcomes yeah. in planning and design and construction, but also to guarantee that you will provide the public access, the public good um, and the taxpayer outcome. Now, if you look at some of the projects in, in uh, the UK platform, one of the most successful outcomes was, uh, and you, I know you've seen this, the, the train station uh, and, and environment at King's Cross. Yes, I have. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic. It is. But when, the way they did that, when they didn't start with the commercial elements at all. They started with the introduction of the cultural elements and the public open space and, and, the, thing, and the diversity that yeah. goes with that. They introduced the, the UK University of the Arts, which yeah. brought in 28 to 30,000 people of a completely different ilk that inhabited mm. the place before mm. and then that started all to hum and then they went to the commercial elements of it. But that cost a lot of money to deliver all that great stuff up front that you talked about. It did about. cost a lot of money. But so it, who pays for that? Well, the the developer up front. Right. Uh, uh, and, but they, they, they won back handsomely because mm. what happened, once you, you, you know what a desperate place King's Cross area was, you mm. know, one of the most dangerous parts of Britain, by introducing this new uh, whole new diverse operating platform, mm. they actually elevated the value of land beyond measure Mm. And so the, the value of the developer's land and the product that the developer was able to sell, mm. uh, the, the refurbishment of the train station and the development of those buildings, mm. it's improved the value of the place massively. Yep. And then there's you know, a very effective application of, of um, value capture. Yeah. Now, the final question I want to ask you is you started the conversation in talking about a greater relationship between Sydney and Melbourne yeah. uh, and taking advantage of that yes. and creating, in a sense, a, a great mega region um, that we can market to the world rather yes. than individual global cities, which is a great concept. What, what about um, 
the concept of high-speed rail connecting the East Coast. Have you got a position on that? Is that something we should be actively pursuing right now or more actively than we currently are? More actively than we've pursued anything ever. Right. So you Because it is it. The, the single most enabler of that super region that yep. you've just described. And we should get past the personal and um, vested interests of politicians and landowners and all that sort of stuff. Mm. What we need, we've got the technology now to run a train between Sydney and Melbourne in two hours and 40 minutes. Yep. People will do that. Yep. But if it takes seven hours, yep. they won't. Yep. And so what you, you've got there is a fantastic piece of infrastructure that is economic. Yep. It will drive the development and uh, all the way through. You'll, you'll see new cities build uh, up around the rail line. Mm. And uh, it, but the, the sort of economic endeavour between Sydney and Melbourne will expand and that will drive the economic growth of the nation. Mm. And so this is a nation-building program. Mm. You think about it, when I first went to China, when I was at the city, uh, the city of Melbourne to establish three business offices in in China, the first time an Australian um, local government's ever done that. They didn't have one fast train. Now they've got over 80. I know. And the reality- I often joke that China was able to build a high-speed rail connection between Beijing and Shanghai in, this, in the same time it took us to undertake our concept feasibility for high-speed rail in Australia. That's right, and then to, to abandon and not proceed. And I won't. I don't want to joke too much because AECOM were, did a wonderful job of delivering that project for the federal government, <laughs> that concept well, feasibly stuff. Yeah, but it, and again, it fell down on the politics of insisting that it had to go through Canberra, yep. which makes it time, um, uh, time. Uh, sorry, not feasible in terms of time. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, there's also, you know, Sydney and Melbourne are also extremely lucrative uh, airline routes as well, and I'm sure there's some politics at play there. But um, I guess in the UK, you've got Virgin now that run the trains and the high-speed rail in, in, in the UK as well. So we perhaps we should how, be more How creative. good would it, James, though, to be, have, a, have a, a bit of competition? Oh, that'd be good. I'm- and I think that would drive re- reform in the airline industry as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they've had it pretty good for a long time. Mm. And I think now's the time to actually compete the hell out of me. You, you think what goes on in the UK, um, you can, you know, the, the fabulous, sorry, the, in Europe, they've had trains there. I, mean, I think the, the bullet train in, in Japan, yeah. uh, is nudging 50 years old. I know. And, and we haven't got one. I know. And we're, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we've got a population right now of 23 million. Yeah. Um, and with more competition, I'm sure, and, you know, the Chinese are lining up right now to, to look at building the high speed rail. And, uh, there is a lot of interest. And, yeah. uh, as you say, I think it is a nation building project. Could I just throw in a bit for those listeners who might be saying, Oh, here we go again, just all about Sydney and Melbourne. The point about it is that that's only the arrival point. Yeah. What what needs to be done, as we were talking about Western Sydney, we need to market the hell out of it so that mm. people come here and they know that there's an offering outside of the cities and then they go there. Yep. And this is so this is the gateway mm. to regional success as yep. well as yep. the driving the economic stuff that I said before. But those regions need to be connected as well. I mean we've tried to, you know, Albury Wodonga, you know, we've tried in the past to to activate the regions and create better industry in the regions. Yeah. Um, but then you think about how well or, or how well we don't do that. I mean, mm. it takes three hours and 20 minutes to get a train to Newcastle. Yeah, no, it's crazy. Imagine if it took 40 minutes. Oh, great. It'd be game changer. Yeah. And the same yeah. for Wollongong as well. The, the, the affordable housing 
um, issue yep. would have a massive yep. um, response yeah. where there would be a massive response where people could live 200 kilometres away and get to work in half an hour. Yeah, and I think the time is right now. You know, the cities of Melbourne and Sydney are both at a critical mass where there probably is a need, a greater need, to develop the regions and provide greater connections to the regions than there was 20 years ago when we had, you know, Albury, Wodonga uh, and the like, um, you know. Yeah, well, those the, the sort of experiments in, and there's a great adage in management that hopes not a management tool. Yeah. And you, you just can't hope it's all going to work. No. You've got to plan it and you've got to start it now. Yeah, you do. David, I hope our listeners agree that this was a fantastic conversation. It was wonderful to capture your global experience and views on how to develop our cities right here in Australia. So we hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Talking Cities. And if you want to get in touch, we really value your feedback. So why don't you just drop us a line at talkingcities at aecom.com. That's Talking Cities, just like our name. We'd love to hear from you on any feedback on this and other episodes. And also, if you want to drop us a line with any other city shapers you can recommend that we interview in the future, feel free to do so as well. 